Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome David Cronenberg. <laughs> The thing is, I didn't read the book until later, and I, then I read a lot of Patrick's stuff, and I thought he was a wonderful writer. But the, I was surprised to find how different the book really was to the screenplay. And I, to, to me, that was a good sign, because yeah. um, that is, I've said many times, you, in order to be faithful to a novel, you have to betray the novel, because there, there is no dictionary that allows you to translate in any way. There's no such thing as a translation to to the screen. I mean, you have to reinvent the thing completely. The two media are so completely different. And if you feel that you have achieved that, it's, it's a really a, an illusion, you know, to make you think, well, it's almost like reading the novel. If you can do that, it's, it's a kind of a, a miracle. But I don't even worry about that. And obviously, Patrick didn't worry about that either, because he was very brutal in, in sort of his reinvention of the hmm. character of Spider and the, the basic structure of it. And, and this is how it went. In the book, Spider writes the novel. That is his journal. The novel is his journal. And that means that he's very literary and he writes beautifully. And he's uh, very adept with words and very manipulative and so on. Um, the, the, the screenplay that I read had Spider writing in his journal, in English, you could read it, and then it had voiceover. And it had hmm. basically Spider reading from the novel. And I said to Patrick, and that was even before I, I read the novel, I said, you know, these are two different people. There's, there's no way that the spider that you've invented for the cinema could be the one who speaks this way, who has these perceptions, and in, in particular can be that articulate about what he's feeling and what's going on in his head. So my solution is the usual one, which is just subtraction. Hmm. I just got rid of a lot of stuff that was in uh, that first draft, in particular the, the voiceover, and I still wanted Spider to be writing because I needed something physical for him to do that was obsessive and that let you know that he was basically taking evidence uh, for, a, 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 for a crime that he felt had been committed. So he was very obsessive and I needed him to have something physical to do, but I didn't want to read what he was writing. So I asked Rafe to develop his own hieroglyphics, uh, kind of cuneiform, that he could write very fluently, and he, I'm sure he still can. Uh, so he, he developed that, and because I wanted to be able to see him do it, and he has very specific, very distinctive hands. I didn't want to have some graphic artist's hands in there, doing something. So um, th that that was all. That's Rafe's um, design, and uh, the narration and his sort of muttering, um, incomprehensible. Really? You, know, voice. you didn't understand that? I had a, maybe it was in, the sound Cannes, system. I don't know. When we, showed the, when we showed the film in Cannes, they had French subtitles oh, no. for every. Yes, they we did. <laughs> they did. And, 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 and the translator is uh, Serge Grunberg, who's written that's, books on me, is a, a very close job. friend. And I said, Serge, you know, yeah, what you, uh, why, why did you do that? He said, the problem is, you know, if, if, if he speaks and there are no subtitles, they think it's, we made a mistake. That's great. Because they'll expect a translation. So uh, there's a lot of stuff there. I think he invented some of it, Serge. <laughs> because you can't really understand all of it. Uh, we'll show it with French subtitles next. That's got to be well, great. 
that this French <laughs> subtitle version is the version. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, that, that was something, I mean, Rafe and I, and in fact, Peter Sushitsky, the, the director of yeah. photography, we all work in, in a very intuitive manner. And so uh, I don't do storyboards, and, I, and certainly for Spider anyway, Rafe didn't do the equivalent of that, which might be a long rehearsal and preparation and so on. It, the preparation is very physical. I mean, actors are bodies. You know, they're very embodied. Directors are kind of disembodied most of the time. You're behind the camera. If you have a cold sore that day or your hair looks terrible, it just doesn't matter. But if you're an actor, those things really do matter uh, because your body is your instrument and, and everything that touches it is important to you. That's why actors, it's not vanity. They, they, they have to be obsessed about their hair and their makeup and their, and their clothes and so on. So, as many actors do, but uh, in particular as Rafe does, uh, it's all accumulation of details. You get the mm. clothes right, the, the, the nicotine stains on the fingers mm. and so on. Um, and we, so there's a lot of preparation that goes on before you start to shoot, but we realized the first day of shooting that we had actually never seen Spider walk. Mm. And of course, the language that Spider speaks is mostly body language. That's his main language in this movie. And so it was a crucial, the first shot that we did, which was the shot of him walking down the street towards Mrs. Wilkinson's house, a crane shot. Um, well, you know, the, 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 one of the main things that we were looking for is how, is that the right walk for Spider? Because you're establishing it. It's got to be, there has to be continuity. And um, so it, it, it's all, you know, it develops in a very intuitive, day-by-day uh, -day kind of way. When did you shoot the, the first shot? The shot in the, the train station is just Amazing. I mean, it's, not, yeah. it's uh, such a powerful image. Is that something that was filmed um, early on? That was the on? last shot we did. Was it really? Yeah. I used all my extras in that shot. <laughs> well, in a way, it's true because um, you'll notice, I find the feedback that I get from English people is terrific because they really find this to be accurate in terms of the tone, the feel of hmm. maybe 1959 and the flashbacks in the early 80s in England. Um, uh, but the truth is that you will never find the streets of London as empty as I shot them. Not e not in the 50s, not in the 40s, not ever. Um, but And I had extras dressed in period costume, and I had period cars ready to drive through the frame and b baby carriages and stuff. Um, and whenever I put them on the streets with Spider, it felt wrong. Hmm. And I kept subtracting. And so, yeah. I said, well, let's get rid of that, let's get rid of that. And I would end up with Spider alone. So, it that was when I realized th that we were not just making a sort of first-person movie, but almost an expressionistic movie. That is, that was Spider's inner sense of isolation that we were showing, rather than what you would see if you were standing there on hmm. the street with him. Um, so it's kind of a double game that I'm playing, which is sort of cultural accuracy, but yeah. expressionistic, an expressionistic version of it. Um, the wallpaper was incredibly important. There's hmm. lots of wallpaper in this movie, and we got tons of it. It's all vintage, authentic English wallpaper. Um, authentic down to being moldy and damp and drab yeah. and stained and all of that. Now, you, you um, work with... You talked about working with some of the same people and uh, the cinematographer, editor. You work with a lot of the same people, Howard Shore, but the production designer was different. Yes. So, uh, uh, Carol you... Spear was trapped in Prague doing Blade Two. <laughs> uh, I think she's still there. 
<laughs> she is still there because she's doing the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So she uh, she couldn't. That she spent nine months there doing Blade Two, and she couldn't. Yeah. So that for the first time since we started on Fast Company, which was a long time ago, wow. <laughs> uh, I had a different. <laughs> <laughs> I had <laughs> I had a uh, a different production designer, uh, um, and um, I had to audition production designers, which is something that I had gotten out of the habit of doing because I, I just automatically would use Carol. So um, uh, the advantage that Andrew Saunders would have over Carol would be that some of the stuff he wouldn't have to do research for because he lived through that era in England, and so. He could say, no, no, the potatoes were that color because hmm. I used to eat them, and I remember that. Wow. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, Carol has an amazing way of, of somehow transporting herself into different times and places, so I have hmm. no doubt that she could have done a wonderful job as well. You, you did shift the time period a bit from the novel, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I can't even remember if Patrick had done it or I did it. I think maybe I, we did it to. Well, it was a collaboration in any case, but um, there's a lot of stuff about the war in yeah. the novel because it, the, the first part of it happens right after the war, so there's a lot of references to Second World War in England, and um, I didn't feel there was room in the in the movie to, to deal with that. It's a, another subject, so I moved it a little further along to the late 50s. I didn't really want to do a 60s movie either. <laughs> Um, so there are no Beatles posters or anything, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, I was just trying to find a, an era that was specific but had, but not so well known to the world at large, um, that it would distract from what was going on in the early '80s. Well, that was that would it's just the time lapse between when Spider would first go to his asylum and when he would get out at the age of what, 35. Now, I, I just feel so much Samuel Beckett in the film, and you've talked about Rafe's haircut being somewhat modeled on yeah. Beckett, but also just a lot of the um, tone of the film, uh, especially particularly with the three men, the scene out in the field. I mean, there's just a lot, of, a lot of times I feel like you're adapting Beckett as well as... Yes, well, stealing. <laughs> stealing from... <laughs> we... Um, we uh, it was... It, it's not in the novel, of course, and it's not really in the screenplay, but... Um, just the way it was described in the screenplay, I started to think very much of those shots of Beckett walking through the streets of Paris with his notebook and uh, and that great hair and those great cheekbones, you know, and uh, um, and yet somehow looking like a vagrant. And it didn't occur to me really until after we finished editing the movie that Spider was in fact a reasonable kind of nightmare. Uh, emblem of uh, of an artist, that is to say, you know, he's writing obsessively about his life, about things that have great passion and meaning for him, and yet he's writing in a language that no one can understand. He's completely not understood, and that is kind of the nightmare of any artist that he should do that and then com have no communication with anyone. Uh, hmm. uh, I've had moments, you know, <laughs> I've had moments um, where I would come out here and there'd be nobody sitting here. <laughs> and I'd just be talking to you. So, um, uh, so the Beckett connection was even closer. But I, I also did think that, that Spider could be a character from, well, you think of Crap's last tape as a play, but also some of his novels more than the plays. Mm -hmm. um, but we also were thinking of, of that austerity and, and that um, purity of, of what Beckett was, was doing. 
And um, that came from the character of Spider, who, who has none of those distractions that we have from the existential realities. I mean, he has no friends, he has no network that derives from work that he does, no art, seems to have no religion. Um, he really just has what he's carrying on his back and in his hand. And so uh, f that too felt very Beckett-like to me, just yeah. in terms of that austerity. And you were not really interested in exploring schizophrenia or the mental illness. I mean, the way that um, you know, last year's um, Oscar-winning best film, you know, *Beautiful Mind*. I Did mean, that explore it? Well, I <laughs> I missed it. I missed that part. But you well, I have to make a confession here. <laughs> After I got a letter from a woman in London, Ontario, who was very upset because she had read something on the internet where I had actually badmouthed the beautiful mind, which I, I normally don't do that in public. I mean, in private, of course, I very terrible on movies. You think you can come to America and, and, and be radar? But um, where she had heard that, and she said that I, I think someone in her family was, was suffering from schizophrenia, and she said that the movie A Beautiful Mind had done more for the image of schizophrenia and schizophrenics than all the sort of stuff that the Canadian Schizophrenia Society and so on had ever done. And I have yet to write her back the letter that I've composed <laughs> in, in my mind, huh. uh, which is exactly you know that, that, that I didn't really think that that movie was right. dealing with schizophrenia at all. And I'm, I have a feeling that anybody who lived with that would agree. Uh, I have been on panels with Patrick, and I would say this. Um, Rafe, I would say, well, Rafe asked me if he could, you know, he wanted to meet schizophrenics and he wanted to meet psychiatrists and go to asylums and so on. And I said, absolutely, we'll, we'll help you do that. But I'm not really that interested in it because I, I'm not wanting to do a clinical study of a disease. Uh, I, I, to me, um, spider represents the human condition and that's what I'm interested in. And I don't want to give the audience a chance to distance themselves from spider uh, and say, well, he's schizophrenic, so that's something wrong with him, and I, I'm not that. So, Because I really wanted the audience to become Spider by the end of it, to really be in his head. Um, and then Patrick said, what David says he didn't want to do is exactly what I did want to do. Hmm. In my novel, um, Patrick was raised at Broadmoor Prison for the Criminally Insane um, because his father was a medical superintendent there. And, and, and it's a huge Victorian um, estate north of in northern England. Um, and he said that schizophrenics and axe murderers were his pram pushers, is the way he put it. Um, so he was very concerned, in particular, that his father would find, speaking of eatable stuff, that certainly there is in this movie as well, uh, he, he wanted his father to you know, give his seal of approval to the clinical aspects of, of schizophrenia. Um, well, my approach was completely different. I really, I said, we've got to be free to allow Spider to develop in, in any way that we feel works. And I don't want to have a list of symptoms that we're checking off and saying, okay, we've covered the hallucinations, we've covered this, we've covered that. Um, and yet, as so often happens, when your instincts are right and focused, um, I have had lots of confirmation that this feels very like a very accurate uh, depiction of hmm. schizophrenia, which in, in, embodies itself in completely different ways in, in people. It's, it's not just one very specific set of symptoms. Um, I had a woman come up to me after a screening that we had in Toronto, and she said to me, um, 
how did you know about the bathtub? Hmm. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, I have one of those at home. My son's 23, six foot five, schizophrenic. And when he takes a bath, that's how he looks. That's what he does. That's how he holds himself. And she said, you must have done research. And I said, no. I mean, in the script it says, spider lies in the bathtub. And it was just our, you know, Rafe and our understanding of what this character would do, what a bath would mean to him, how exposed and vulnerable he would feel, and and just the way we lit it and the lens that we used and the music that Howard Shore composed for that scene. All of that ended up, for her, delivering a sort of clinically accurate version of what she was living with with her son. So there are many ways to accuracy, and that seemed to be one of them. Can you talk a bit about how you created a sub- the? Uh, so many of your films are um, create a subjectivity where, the, where we're in a world that's really the, the the world of the main character, and you do it, I think, in, in subtle ways. I think um, through camera placement, through um, um, the the sound design in, the, in this film is very subtle, but very like I think really takes us inside Spider. So I don't know if you could talk a bit about like sort of cinematically how you create this. Um. Well, once again, I say it's kind of intuitive. Uh, I don't really know what lens I'm going to use before we shoot, and I don't know how I'm going to choreograph the scene before we shoot. So it's really a matter of feeling your way through the scenes one by one and experimenting. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, we there are a lot of technical things I could say. We used a very low-contrast Fuji film stock, which is not normally what Peter Sushitsky and I would do. Um, and that tends to make the shadows more gray, not very dark, and the brights are kind of muted. And then I used uh, a very wide-angle lenses for close-ups. They're wide-angle in, in, in the sense that you don't normally use them for close-ups, 21 millimeters and 27 millimeter, um, which sort of keeps the background in focus as well as the face, uh, not the normal portrait thing that you would do. You'd normally use a long lens with, that would throw the background out of, uh, out of focus. Uh, but so it sort of kind of makes Spider blend into the his, his own background in a way, and um, these are this is all rationalization after the fact. I freely confess, <laughs> but be, but it just felt right when we were doing it, you know. And um, although there is a sort of a, an analytical thing that that I well it was intuitive as well. There were a lot of um, effects in the in that would be sp- what you call special effects in the script. Originally, mm-hmm. and even more in the in the novel, um, and um, they are the kind of things that people would think that I would really like to do. Uh, but in fact, I only like to do that stuff if it works. I not I don't really special effects is just like lighting or or editing or anything else. It's just another thing that you use if if you need it, not something I think to be obsessed with. So, um, for example, there was a scene where the boy cuts into a potato and it starts to bleed. And of course it's his mother's blood because he thinks she's buried under this potato patch. And so it's very legit kind of hallucination. But it would be very obvious to an audience that it's a hallucination and that it's not real. And I had the guys make the potato. (laughs) They showed it to me. It exploded. The first time (laughs) they showed it to me, it got blood all over everything. This is normal for effects guys. (laughs) <laughs> um, and then, and then they were very, very sad, you know, melancholy. I'd say <laughs> um, when I didn't shoot it. Um, but the thing was that it was—I realized by that time that it was from some other movie. 
you know, the movie gradually reveals itself to you. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't know what you're doing, but it does mean that you're kind of creating a complex living thing, and you want it to surprise you and push you around and tell you what it wants to do and what it doesn't want. Uh, uh, characters do that too when you're writing. Um, and you normally let them because that kind of life is very hard to find, and you, when you've got it, you, you don't let go of it. So um, I, the, the movie was kind of telling me what it wanted to be. So the main hallucination in this movie is, of course, Miranda Richardson playing Yvonne. And I felt, if it's a subjective movie, then when Spider thinks something is real, we must also. And those other effects hallucinations, we would know that they were right. not real. Um, the other thing is uh, that when Spider is confused, then we're confused. And if you're going to really be rigorous about it, you've got that's the game you're playing in this yeah. movie. Is it's okay? I'm really going to do this. And and it was very difficult for Gabriel Byrne playing Bill. That was he said it was the most difficult mm. role he'd ever played, and he's played a, ro a lot of roles. Um, but it was because. Um, a lot of the time, maybe most of the time, he's not playing a character. He's playing the pr fantasy projection of another character. And that's very difficult to do. Um, where do we see the real Bill? You know, little bits and pieces kind of come out. And the main scene, of course, was the scene in the woodshed where he's, uh, he says to Spider, why are you so angry with us? And there you see... It was very interesting also in Toronto when we screened it. People laughed at that line, and I would never have anticipated a laugh at that line. And then I realized, of course, that if you really believe that Bill has murdered his wife, Spider's mother, and replaced her with this slut from the pub, why is he asking why, why are you so angry with us? I mean, it's obvious why the kid's <laughs> angry. Then the audience got quieter and quieter, and they began to realize that, oh my God, maybe that isn't really true. Maybe this is the real Bill that we're seeing, not the demonic Bill who can kind of kill his wife and then have a swig um, and bring her home and not seem to worry about what the neighbors would think and sure. and expect the kid to just kind of accept this woman. Um, so, But that's what happens if you're really doing the, the, the yeah. subjective thing. But as I say, it makes it difficult. It's If you see the movie again, it, it will become quite a different movie, I guarantee it. Okay, let's take some questions from the audience. Uh, we'll go, uh, I'll repeat them just so everybody can hear, but um, right over here. Okay, did you ever have a motivation in your head for Spider killing his mother? Not, yeah. Well, killing his real mother or killing Yvonne? Well, we don't know that what you see at the end is the real story, you know. I mean, it's possible that Spider's mother isn't dead. It's possible that Spider's mother left the family and then as children tend to do spider felt guilty and that he was responsible it was his fault and then he developed a fantasy that he murdered her um so we don't know what the truth is i mean just because spider thinks he's got to the truth doesn't mean we necessarily know there could be a spider too you know <laughs> <laughs> Okay, if you could just talk a little bit about the sound, I guess the sound design in the film and I don't know, music maybe as well. Well, um, it's very spare. <laughs> uh, it's a very quiet movie, which I suppose these days is, is, is a rarity. And so you hear things that um, are important to Spider. I mean, 
what you've got with Spider is a, is a, is a man, a fully developed human being who has very few things uh, to put his energy, his human energy into. So he puts it into what he's got. So his notebook is incredibly important to him. And his cigarettes and his cigarette papers and his pace is very deliberate. And I didn't ever, it never occurred to me to not let the movie be anything but Spider's pace, even though it's you know not a traditional kind of movie thing these days. Um, and likewise, the sounds and the smells are all very important to Spider. They're all very significant, and it means um, a lot of quiet and just the sound of his feet scrabbling on the gravel has significance to him too. So that was really the shape of the of the of the sound was that it should be very very quiet so that small things would take on great significance and the music is i mean howard shore was had just finished composing the music for lord of the rings that he won an oscar for and then spider was his next movie so you know they're very different <laughs> very different <laughs> scores it, it um we didn't have you know 200 african choir boys and things like that <laughs> and, and lord of the rings did but um but it, it, it didn't matter, I mean, because that was the, the name of the game. It was, was not that we didn't have what we needed. We did. We had exactly what we needed, which was very small, delicate, uh, intricate stuff that had great resonance for Spider. And, 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 and so the whole design of it was uh, subjectivity. That was a thing to be, th that the silence can be as... as um, Provocative and profound as any noise, you know, and and it's not that's not used very often in movies these days. But it it it's was the basis of Spider's sound. Okay, in terms of the composition of the shots, which she liked a lot, and you said you didn't do storyboard, but how did you determine your compositions? Did you do shot um, Look through the lens, you know. I mean, <laughs> not 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 to be evasive. Um, it's really. Uh, a sculptural procedure for me making a movie is very tac tactile and physical, and I want to touch the actors, and I want I need to smell the location, and um, so to do storyboards is a very abstract thing. It's to me, it's it's very, it's like uh, a kind of disembodiment, and I need to be embodied. I mean, it's a very physical thing for me to make a movie, so I want that stuff around, um, and that's why I. Some actors don't like this, but I, do, I tend I don't do rehearsals because hmm. to me it all changes when you get on the set and the real stuff is there. Miranda, I only learned after the fact, was a little upset about that. She would have liked some rehearsal, but <laughs> uh, I don't think she needed it, frankly. And um, we so it's all impromptu. I mean, it's it's there's a, in a strange sense a lot of what I'm doing is found art. I've put a lot of work into the look of the place, the, the building of the sets or the choosing of the locations and the costumes and everything. But then when I'm there, it's kind of like I'm making a documentary of what we just did or what we're doing. Um, so it's all impromptu. I mean, it's, it's just, okay, Rafe is standing at the wardrobe, he's writing. Um, what lens will I use, you know? Let's look at this, let's look at that. Yeah, that looks really good. And then my cameraman gets excited, and he said, well, we could just put a shadow here. I, I encourage my uh, cameraman to not do what cameramen love to do, which is to do relatively naturalistic lighting. I mean, if you, if you show a room to a director of photography, 
that he's going to shoot and he immediately looks for sources of light. That's the first thing he does. Well, and, and if you're designing it, he'll say, well, can we have a skylight, you know, and can we have another, another window over there and can we have some practical lamps over there? Because he's looking for sources of light to make it real, even though it's all fakery, of course. Um, and you'll notice that there's a lamp besides Spider's night table and it's never, uh, by, by his bed, and it's never lit. You know, now normally you would, they'd go right for that. Yeah, let's put the, and um, I said, we're never going to see that on because it doesn't work. This is England. Um, and so uh, after a little resistance, Peter really got into it and would use colors, gels, and, and not to get, I didn't want to get too cute about it, and I certainly didn't want to give the audience cues about what was fantasy and reality by making some scenes very green or yellow or whatever. Uh, so we didn't do anything like that. But there are some scenes in Spider's room, for example, where the light is coming from a wall. It's just a solid wall with no light fixtures on it. L light could not possibly come from there. Once again, it's a subjective, uh, my, my excuse was to say it's, it's the way he lights it in his head. You know? So those are some of the, the ways that I was working. More than any other filmmaker that I can think of, your films, at least for me, always really create a sense of unease. Anxiety. You know, I was watching CNN today and I felt the same way. <laughs> <laughs> They're great. <laughs> Fabulous. Okay, so at what point in the production did you decide to have Spider as an adult present in some of the memory scenes? Um, and, and speaking of unease, I suppose, also. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well, it was in the script. Um, now, Patrick seems to remember it one way, which is that he only had... Spider present in his own memories in one scene, and then I asked him to extend it to the whole movie. And I, I, I don't remember that. I thought it was like that to begin with. But, but that's in the nature of a, of a good and sort of fluent um, collaboration. You, you, when it works well, you can't remember almost who came up with what. So I really don't know which way it is. But um, I, I always liked it. And I always thought it would work. And it, the only other time I've done something quite like that was in The Dead Zone when I have the Christopher Walken character present in his own visions. And that was something that is, was not in the novel and I, I had come up with. But this is different. Um, but it seemed to me to be the perfect uh, cinematic way to, first of all, give you the memories and Spider's reaction to those memories, how he was feeling, remembering those things at the same time but also to show you how we are present always in our memories, that we are interfering with them. Uh, a, a journalist said to me, you know, when Spider's present in his house looking through the window and lurking in the corner, it's like a director being on a film set. And I said, well, I hadn't thought of it that way, but mm. it's exactly what it means, because he's redirecting his memories, he's cutting them, he's rewriting them, he's choreographing them. Uh, the, the the understanding of memory from this movie, which is mine as well, but Patrick's also, is that memory is always a created thing. There's a lot of creative energy that goes into remembering. It, it, there's no version of memory that's an absolute, like a, f a film that you would take that would stay the same decade after decade and people could look at it and all s agree that they're seeing the same thing. Probably with a film you wouldn't get that anyway. But... Um, uh, we're constantly revising our memories and inventing them and reinventing them. And I, I'm sure many of you had, have had the experience of having something that you thought was a memory 
and then later your sister or your mother tells you that you weren't there then, that in fact that was a kind of a family communal memory that was laid on you so many times that you started to think you actually remembered it. But it's been part of you for years, so is it not a real memory? You know, this <laughs> is the question. Um, and then when you realize that memory is identity, there cannot be any identity without memory, um, that suggests that we are constantly revising our identities as well, and I think that is also true. I mean, one of the things that really makes this work is a child act, you know, the actor who plays the young spider, just remarkable. Um, so, I mean, could you talk about fi finding him, working with this? Yeah, well, you know, with Harry Potter, they said they looked at <laughs> 900 kids, you know, which I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it, not 900. <laughs> so you just took so, the first one? That, 36. Yeah. I looked at 36 boys, and Bradley was, um, you know, it wasn't immediately totally obvious, but and he, and he was also a lot younger than what Patrick had imagined uh, Spider as being, but if, as a boy. But I said, no, he has to be. It has to be before puberty. I mean, that everything changes if he's 13 or 14. If he's a man, if he has hairy legs, I don't want him. It's 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 got to be boyish little knobby. English knees, you know, in those <laughs> short pants. Um, so uh, Spider was ten, basically, or he had to be a, 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 an actor who could play ten. And um, and uh, the the woman who did the casting in London specializes in kids, mm -hmm. and she had discovered Jamie Bell, who was in Billy Elliot. That was her big claim to fame, and she knew all the sort of kids, and, and, and uh, Bradley had done very little, almost nothing. Mm -hmm. He sort of belonged to a drama club and had done some <laughs> little theater and stuff. He hadn't really be, been in front of the camera, and it was a fantastic transformation for him to see him. I mean, we were all very, you know, we loved Bradley, and he just developed into a professional. You could see it happening. Mm -hmm. By the end of the movie, and he watched Rafe very carefully, uh, because, of course, they were in a lot of scenes together, even though they never speak, of course, because they're the same person. And um, by the end of the movie, he wouldn't let the props guy, you know, rewind the string for take two. He would rewind it himself because uh. he had a very specific way, you know, uh. and it had to be rewound. And and uh, many good actors are, are like that. that. As I say, the, the things that they deal with, like, like props, are very personal to them, and they don't really want props people coming in and messing around with them. Okay, so yeah, so the question is, are there any scenes of um, either in the novel or the screenplay of objective reality that's not Spider's reality? Because there are scenes in the film where Spider wasn't present. Oh, and then were the Oedipal stuff triggered by the side of seeing the mother kissing Gabriel Byrne outside the window? Well, I'll, I'll, <laughs> those are two separate things, although they, of course, connect. So let me, let me answer the first one first. Um, we, I, I asked Patrick to get very specific in the script about what level of uh, memory or imagination we were dealing with uh, for the crew primarily because the script after it's sort of an art, sort of a beginning in co-ed art thing, um, uh, it then becomes a blueprint for the crew. So you won't want everybody to know where we were. So I, we had three levels. We had memory, we had infected memory, and then we had imagination. And um, memory was something where Spider, as a boy, was present and was not hallucinating. 
then so scenes with him with his mother when she's putting on lipstick or you know talking to him about the spider webs and so on that would be memory infected memory is when he's, he is remembering what he thought he saw as a boy but he was hallucinating then and that would be all of the scenes where he sees Yvonne replacing his mother and uh, shockingly enough if you see the movie again when you see Yvonne think of her as Mrs. Clegg and you'll get a completely different story you'll get a story of, of, a, of a, a marriage where there's a, some difficulties the normal kind he drinks a little too much uh, maybe he's not happy with sex with her um, she decides for whatever reason to, to dress a little for him and maybe go out to the pub and have a few drinks with him and not be so prudish about his drinking and then so she gets drunk, drunk with him then they come home arm in arm and they have sex together that's Miss, him. That's Bill and Mrs. Clegg the, the happy version but by this time Spider doesn't want to see that version that's the Oedipal problem uh, we'll get back to that so um, then there's imagination and those are scenes where Spider could not be remembering because he wasn't there. And that includes a lot of stuff, including the murder of Mrs. Clegg. So it's not really a, a, a structural flaw, let's say. Uh, I was talking to the, the, the director, Patricia Rosema. She said, wait a minute, you mean that a structural flaw is the key to the whole movie? <laughs> I said, well, it's not exa- you, know, you could look at it that way. Because she was thinking there was a mistake being made. No, wait a minute, he couldn't possibly be remembering this because the kid isn't there. Hmm. But in fact, that, that's meant to be meaningful. Um, as is the fact that I have the same actress playing these three roles. Uh, which is another sort of subjective trick thing. Uh, normally when you have an actor playing multiple roles, it's to show how versatile the actor is and so on. But in this case, it, it has a, a point because Spider is fusing together uh, people in his life. Um, the woman in the pub that we see first who exposes her breast to uh, Spider is not Miranda Richardson. And you might not have thought of it because you don't know at that point that she's going to be a very significant character but in fact it's another actress and um, uh, the idea is so where the Oedipal stuff actually starts it's hard to say um, usually with birth I think <laughs> um, and and though I'm certainly not a, a, I'm not a, a rigorous Freudian um, and in fact we do kind of cross the line with with the eatable thing because technically Spider should be murdering his father so he can have his mother. But his mother happens to be Yvonne and so that makes problems. Mm. Now that's why he murders his mother Yvonne because she supplanted his mother Mrs. Clegg. Just to answer that question that I didn't a- a- actually get to <laughs> before. Um, and that was something um, that I did change actually because I think Patrick, even as he wanted to be rather clinical in his approach to schizophrenia also wanted to be kind of rigorous in his approach to Freud and he I think did initially have Spider thinking he was killing his father and then accidentally killing his mother Uh, and I thought that was too coincidental and and too perfectly Freudian and eatable and and also didn't make sort of logical sense the boy is threatened by this creature Yvonne and um, and has already imagined that she was uh, uh, a co-murderer, a co-conspirator. So he, she, he has every right to 
murder her as far as he's concerned. So that, that was another change. Okay, well, the idea of a character who's able to step outside of his memories um, creates a complicated relationship for it adds some element of objectivity, so it's not a completely subjective, mm -hmm. so, which is similar to the way that yeah. we're unraveling the film as an audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I see your point. And, and the, as I say, you cannot photograph an abstract concept, you know, so you have to photograph people and things. And so and when I said it's impossible to do an actual sort of translation of a novel, that's part of the problem, because even a very bad novelist can give you that interior life by doing an inner monologue. It just works in literature very well. And I think a huge part of that is the fact that consciousness depends very much on language, at least higher consciousness as we experience it. Language is so much a part of that. And if you're doing something that is outside of language, like photography, um, you have a, it's very difficult to find a way to su suggest subjectivity, really. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a, so it's a, it's a kind of a toss-up. But since you seem to think it worked well, I'm going to say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay, so just, uh, well, I guess we haven't talked much about Miranda Richardson, uh, but if you can talk about how she got attached to the project and just what it was like working with her. It's one of those lovely little stories. Um, I had tried to get Miranda in, in a movie before, and it hadn't worked out. And then I met her in Toronto briefly, um, but not hadn't really spoken to her much. And so when I flew to London to first talk to Rafe and Catherine Bailey, the producer of the film, we naturally started to talk about who would play these roles. And I said, uh, what about Miranda Richardson? And they said, well, that's amazing that you say that. I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, in the four years in the wilderness before we had a director, um, we did a reading of the script. And this is something that's often done when people are frustrated. They have a script they think is good, and they can't get the movie made. They'll have a little reading on a stage like this, or in a pub, or in somebody's house, and if the actors will get their friends to sort of read. Uh, this is not for money. And often it's not even for an audience. It's just to sort of see how it sounds. And they got Miranda to do that reading. So I said, well, was she any good? <laughs> and they said she was fantastic. So I said, well, why don't we get her? And um, so and so we did. And all, almost lost her because this movie almost fell apart many times, uh, including in, in preparation, uh, just f the, the, the normal torture of independent film financing. And... Uh, uh, I, we almost lost her to another movie because she had committed to some other movie and then she decided she would blow that movie off and do ours. She knew it was going to be better. Um, yeah, Miranda is great. I mean, you know, she's so good. I said, I could have, why didn't I just hire three separate actresses for all you've done? You know, you, you're, 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 you're so good that a lot of people didn't realize it was the same actress until almost the end of the movie, or in fact, even into the credits at times. Um, and that is, that goes beyond the game I wanted to play. If you go maybe three quarters of the way, way through the movie and not realize it's Miranda playing Yvonne, and then you do, that's sort of perfect. But if you don't realize <laughs> it, then it kind of defeats the purpose of having her be the same person. Uh, and um, uh, she was asked in panels, and as I say, this is stuff that I, because it's not, I didn't find it necessary to to have this discussion with her, but 
because I assume that actors know how to act if they're professionals, and it's not my job to teach them how, which is you often read about directors, you know, torturing their actors to get performances and doing this and tricks and, I don't know, firing guns and stuff. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, unless you're dealing with, with non-actors who do need some help, um, I, my assumption is they know how to do it. They, they know how to torture themselves really well. You don't have to do <laughs> it for them. And um, Miranda, uh, you know, said, well, I couldn't play these people as different aspects of the same person. You know, that's an actor cannot act an abstract concept. So she would play them as separate real people. That's the way she did it. And um, she said that the hour and a half or so in the makeup chair and then change of costume and the, you know, the pointy brassiere thing uh, for Yvonne um, were, were all she needed, really, to segue from one character into another. There's just a, that, that little bit of time and those changes because actors do feel all that stuff. Uh, a lot of actors say, if you just give me another pair of shoes, I'll be a different character. So... That's how she did it. Okay, well, thank you. And please come back when you do Spider 2 or whatever yeah, your next you. film is. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.